You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, and my name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject coming up for you is a forgotten man of new wave of British heavy metal. Very influential he is, though. His name is Barry Graham Perkis, and he's the drummer in Thunderstick. I guess he also goes by the pseudonym Thunderstick as well. But the reason for the conversation is to promote the excellent, the epic 2017 album, one of my favourite albums of the year, Something Wicked, This Way Comes. So let's have a listen to what he has to say. Let's go. You have a new album for 2017 titled Something Wicked This, this Way Comes. And, mate, I've got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised. I did not expect... Well, mate, I didn't expect a new album from your good self, and I especially didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I do, with all due respect. And I think a, <laughs> I think a lot of people will feel the same way that I do if they give the songs a chance. So let me ask you this. What inspired you to create music again under the hallowed Thunderstick banner? Um, more than anything else was the death last year of my one-time singer-stroke partner, Jody Valentine. She was with me in the 80s for five years. We were together. Um, we, As well as um, releasing material back in those days, there was a lot of material that we had written and... Uh, and we had played live, but he had never seen the light of day. It had never been released. And when I found out about her death, it's, um, you know what it's like when you find out something about somebody such as sure. that. <laughs> uh, it got me thinking a lot, and um, it really did shock me. It wasn't so much that she had died. It was more the fact that she had suffered from early Alzheimer's disease and had been um, in a care-assisted home for five years. Jeez. And... Mm. Yeah, really, indeed. And um, there was a guy that contacted me because uh, she was American. She'd gone back to the States. She gave up singing when she went back out there and she took up uh, piano. She used to uh, teach classical piano. She had a degree in that. Anyway, this guy contacted me, told me that he was a, himself a musician and that as a voluntary service, he would go to various places and visit people such as Jody. Um, and once he found out about her past, he he um, actually got an album because I released a lot of the early backlog material in 2011. He then took that C or bought that CD, went in to see her. And the saddest thing was that when he played her the CD, sitting with her, she by all means didn't um, even recognize her own voice. Mm. And that was I mean, that really shocked me. And uh, so because of that, I thought all the material that we had played live and never had been recorded properly, it was about time that I did that really as, as a kind of homage to her. And that's exactly what I did. Good on you, mate. Very good reasons for doing that. Um, so you were with, she was part of the band for five years. Now, for those who don't know, mate, what albums did you release with her as the lead vocalist or singer? Well, we did, um, um, first of all, we did an EP that was called Feel Like Rock and Roll. Um, that was a, a self-financed EP with four tracks on it. It, lasted, it was about 20 minutes, just over 20 minutes of music. Um, then we did an album called uh, Beauty and the Beasts. Um, that was the, full, the first full Thunderstick album. And then we later went on to record another album, Don't Touch Our Scream, which, um, as I say, never saw the light of day. And so that's where... Um, seven tracks on this new album come from those sessions. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, all I've done is rearranged them 
um, and tried to sort of, I wanted to try and get with this new album, I wanted to try and keep one foot in the past and one very much in the now. And so I treated the guitars in a kind of a new wave of British heavy metal type of way. I wanted that kind of, uh, that kind of sound to it. But at the same time, I wanted it, it to sound comparatively uh, contemporary and uh, very much in and out. And uh, judging by people's reactions, they seem to have uh, actually agreed with me that I managed to pull that off, which I'm really pleased about. Couldn't agree more, mate. Yeah, it's, yeah, this is, I'm going to make a point a bit later on in our interview, which I think you've just summarized, summarized very nicely there, but it sounds like as though that she might have even been, sorry, talking about your previous vocalist, she might have even been with you guys in spirit when you were recording these particular songs. Well, that's very strange for you to say that because um, the one thing that uh, there was, there's one, I've never really written any any kind of ballads before. And um, on the the last track on the album is called um, I Close My Eyes. And it was a, a direct, um, it was a direct uh, homage to, to Jody, as I say, in memory of her. And it was incredible, the speed of which the lyrics came and the vocal melody, etc. It was really strange. The guy in the studio, because we, we had a working title for it, putting down the backing track. And um, the guy said to me, uh, what's this called? Is it called anything yet? And I said, yeah, I closed my eyes. And it just literally just hit me like that. And it was very strange the way it came about. And uh, yeah, as I say, that's it's it's quite a departure for me because I've never done any kind of ballad, rock ballads or whatever. And so um, with this one, I'm really quite proud of it. And we put it on to um, on YouTube and uh, a first couple mm-hmm. of weeks, I think we had something like 8000 people viewing it, which was in, insane. But um, anyway, yes, that's um, very much so. She was in spirit with us. Yes. All right. Very nice, mate. And look, what I'm about to say now goes on for a little bit, so bear with me, but I have thought about this one. So here goes. It is a question wrapped in a statement. I was <laughs> I was certainly aware of who you are as an artist, and I was also aware as a bass player that you are a famed drummer. In many ways, you are also the, fame, the face of a new wave of British heavy metal, as declared by Sounds Magazine all those years ago. So I found out about you and the release via an article on Blabbermouth of all bloody places, and promptly listened to the cut accompanying the article, which is the excellent Don't Sleep With The Enemy idea. Now, I'm not one of those blokes that listens to a lot of old-school rock and metal, I've got to say, but I do appreciate new sounds and innovation over legacy artists such as Led Zeppelin and Iron Maiden, but this is probably because I've lived with heavy metal for 30 years, 30 years of my 39 years alive, and I'm eager for new sounds these days. But, mate, I've got to tell you, your music has struck a chord, and it is the exception. It really grabbed me, and I think it will grab a lot of other people too. It's such a refreshing change, and the new album, if you can believe it, has found a home amongst my collection of Amur... The Charm, The Fury, Adagio, and Rings of Saturn, which are metalcore and deathcore records, and a plethora of other modern hard rock and heavy metal sounds. So here's my question. How do you plan to promote the album, and how can you reach a young and impressionable audience? Because I'll certainly be doing my part to help promote the album, but it is a challenge in 2017 to recognise what medium is best for promoting new music and art. Hope you caught all of that. Wow, Andrew, that was amazing, absolutely amazing, <laughs> and and thank you so much for that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable, really kind words. Thank you. Pleasure, right, mate. Get to answer your question. Um, 
as much as I possibly can promote it. I'm going to, um, when it, when the uh, hard copy comes out, hopefully at the end of this month, the CD, um, that's going to be available all over the place to, um, to actually uh, buy. We're going to put it on um, both of my Facebooks, both, both my own Facebook, Barry Graham Perkis, plus um, the Thunderstick Facebook. We also have a web store that we will set up um, it's called uh, um, myfreewebstore.com. Mm -hmm. And as, as well as that, we will be on Bandcamp. Um, as promoting it, I, I intend to do as much as I possibly can to promote it. Um, I mean, I, there's a few people around me that kind of make up the kind of immediate family around the Thunderstick thing, and um, they will help as well. But uh, yes, I, I mean, I can. I'm in a lucky situation that I can dedicate a lot of time to it, and um, it it is a case of just sitting down in front of the computer because it's a different it's a different age now. Bloody completely. Oath, yeah. mm -hmm. And uh, the way to promote something now is to really sort of one to one with your audience, which is uh, basically the reason that I've I've done part of it on um, uh, pledge music. Pledge music being crowdfunding. Yes. So uh, I, I have a, a real good mate, um, a guy called Bernie Torme, who um, oh, Aussie's he, guitarist, yeah. Oh, that's what, right, one yeah, time Aussie guitarist, yeah. Yeah, and and Gillen as well, obviously. Yep. Um, yes, we've I've been friends with Bernie many years, and um, to see him do three albums on the uh, on the um, Pledge music. Um, it, it sort of thought, I thought to myself, well, I can try that because after such a long layoff, I had no idea as to how many I had uh, as a fan base. Um, it, it was a little bit kind of, uh, um, I, I, it was just sort of tried to, uh, try to get some idea of, of who would like it and who would like to buy it. And, um, it was just a case of trying to get in there and, and seeing if I did have actual people that still wanted to hear Thunderstick music. And it has really kind of been quite quite a, um, a, a humbling experience for me to do that because there are a lot of people that have just suddenly come out of nowhere and said, you know what, I had your album back in the day and one mm. thing and another. And that's really, really good. So you've recruited a new band, of course, and... I understand they recorded the new album alongside of you. So you did, it wasn't you that played all of the instruments. You actually recruited a band around you. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah. And the singer in particular has really taken me by surprise, and I understand her name is Lucy V. She sounds very impressive, mate. How did you go about recruiting new members, and how did you find people? Okay, well, um, as soon as I realised that I was going to do it, um, yet again, it was going to be a problem because I thought, well, I, I've got a, a, an immediate close circle of friends. Um, so the first thing I asked uh, was uh, my old guitarist back in the 80s who had never, ever recorded with me. It was, it was crazy because uh, we were together a, a good couple of years and he had been doing material that went that subsequent went on this album, but he had never been recorded doing it. So I phoned him up and said, yeah, this is a guy called Dave Kilford. And I said, Dave, you know, what do you think? And he went, oh, my God, yeah, you know, <laughs> it would be great to actually <laughs> lay the ghost to rest as it was. Yeah. So he was first on. Um, the other the other people came about because the studio that I used was an old school friend of mine. And um, he 
you know, he sat down with me and we did the logistics to it. And he said, well, you know, what are you hoping to do it for? How much, et cetera, the hard, cold facts. And I said, yeah, but I haven't got a band around me as yet. And he said, well, I know a guitarist down here. I can put him in contact. And that was a guy called Martin Shellard. And, um, I mean, both guitarists, I was very lucky in that they both really complement each other in their styles. So it's really nice to hear them playing at the same time simultaneously because they both fit into that slot, as it were. And then I started looking for female vocals. I didn't want to find somebody that was a carbon copy of what Jody was. Um, I needed somebody yeah. with a different voice, different attitude, etc. And um, that's where Lucy V came up. We auditioned her. Um, I had looked at uh, a fair few, and uh, we we boiled it down to two two young ladies, and uh, Lucy was the one that I took on. And as for the bass player, very strange. I went to uh, a Steve Harris gig with um, his side, but you know his, yeah, his solo his project. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Um, British Line, it, uh, British Line. Yeah, yep. and he was playing local to me and i went to see him and uh it was crazy because it was the first time i've seen him in oh my <laughs> years you know yeah uh, he was just preparing to go on stage and the the um the agent who who got me in she said quick come here and uh opened the door and he went bloody hell yeah <laughs> it's been a long time so yep. anyway afterwards we were talking and uh he was doing his meet and greet with all the the you know, different people that uh, were queuing up to see him. And the next day I was on Facebook, a guy dropped a note and said, we were in the queue behind you at the Steve Harris gig. And I went, oh, right. And he put in a friend request. I went onto his page and saw that he was holding a bass. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because originally I was going to use John McCoy. Now, John McCoy is uh, quite a well-known bass player in, in this country. He um, and he was the the Gillam bassist when Bernie was the guitarist. Right, and gotcha. I've known John John for many years. He was on the first Samson album as well that we did. Anyway, I was going to use him, but one thing or another, it didn't turn out. Anyway, I looked on on this Facebook and I started talking to this guy because the picture of him holding a bass. He submitted some stuff that he'd done, and we got together, and that was it. We we managed to gel. It's different for me because I usually don't use a bass player that is a finger bass player. All the bass players I've used and worked with in the past have always been plectrum players. Right, okay. Yep. Very, very percussive with that. But um, with Rex, he just sort of had such a nice style. I found it very, very similar to that of Gene Simmons, really. And um, so, you know, we worked, worked well together. So, you know, that was it. We, we had the band so we went in and did it well that was the thing that really and there's a lot of things that impressed me about the album but the word cohesive comes to mind when i start thinking about the way the musicians interpret your wonderful music and look i, I live in brisbane and i've had all sorts of god-awful travel in the past trying to bloody get mm. average musicians together for standard gigs in pubs and clubs around southeast queensland mate yet alone trying to find people that can interpret original music, mate. So it's either really easy or really hard. And it sounds like, though, with all due respect, mate, again, it was quite easy for you to find people. But did you find people were attracted to the reputation that you were able to offer? And, you know, instead of the riches and the, the world tours and all of that sort of stuff, were people just thinking, shit, this is my opportunity to be, to be a part of something significant? I think a bit of both, really. Um, I, I chose unknowns. 
Um, they are known within their own circles, obviously, and they're they're playing. Um, but I, especially with uh, with Lucy and uh, and Rex, they hadn't really sort of done anything significant. And I, I'm not saying that to belittle them at all. You know, they just no, no, you're saying that. Yeah, it hadn't happened, and so. Rex and I got together and we started going through the material and it was it was quite obvious that he was going to be able to translate it the way that I wanted it. Um, Lucy was very much an X Factor until we I I had a an audition tape of her on um, on uh, we we shot a DVD a little DVD of her and um, when she was auditioning so I knew the kind of voice that she had that husky kind of smoky blues voice. Um, not so much like Jody because Jody was a, a really quite a, a clear, crystal clear type yes. of voice, almost like um, uh, musical theatre, that sort of thing, of which she had done in the States. Whereas Lucy had come from a different background, she had that, she had that kind of feel about it, that smoky feel about it. So uh, it was an X factor because I didn't know how she was going to perform, but she did, and uh, I, I it was great because I thought. Hopefully, I'm able to give these guys just a, 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 and it doesn't, I hope it doesn't sound conceited or big headed or anything, but I was taking them up to a, a, you know, a new level for yeah, them. Yeah, of course. No, I'm um, sure this. They, had, they hadn't had that recognition. They hadn't suddenly, uh, you know, have people saying, some, wow, do you play with so and so and all that kind of thing. So I was, um, yeah, I was pleased to do it. It really, and, and now we've got to try and do it live and go out and play live. So. Yes. Okay. So let's ask a question about that. Are you, are you planning on doing a tour far and wide or just some local shows or how are you planning to promote the album in terms of touring and performing? Um, yet again, big X factor. I mean, the whole thing was to, for me to just kind of lay the ghosts to rest and, um, and and put that material out there and i it was so good for me to do that and it was oh i've actually managed to get this out of my head for the last 30 years as to what it would be like and there it is an entity of its own so from that i now need to take it out live to promote it it all depends on who wants to see the band i think that um the possibly the best way to go immediately would be to do a support tour for a, a, a reasonably well-known band. Yep. Um, but we all know that biomes exist, and uh, you don't get chosen because so and so, so and so in the band likes you. It's all about how much and uh, how many gigs and how many bums on seats, etc. So it is something that, of course, I want to go out and promote it. It would be silly not to do that, but I have to look at look at it it's uh you know logistically as well as uh as well as how well it would be to do that but uh, you know it's all about money isn't it the whole thing is always about money it's very hard to be artistic and divorce and separate the the uh the figures and the paperwork that is required to yeah. keep a band together um it's great to say yes well i'm just an artist and that's all i do but there is another side to it that as a as a working musician, you have to be totally aware of and on top of. Do you know Richie Blackmore at all? And there's a reason I asked that question. Um, no, I don't know Richie Blackmore. Yes, I toured with him with Samson. We mm. did. Uh, I think it was Back to Earth was the album with um, 
Cozy Powell and Graham Bonney. I think so. Um, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, does anybody really know Richie? Does Richie Blackmore know Richie Blackmore? <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't. I couldn't think of a better opening band than yourselves for what he's doing with Rainbow in 2017. And I know that he's planning a slew of shows. So, I mean, the universe works in mysterious ways, mate. I don't know whether he actually listens to what I do. He probably doesn't. He wouldn't know who I am, of course. But, um, mate, I don't know if somebody out there who's listening could somehow. You know, say to Richie, hey, have a listen to what Thunderstick is doing in 2017. I reckon that'd be a phenomenal double bill. Thank you so much. Well, that is just the praise just keeps on coming. <laughs> oh, it's all Thank genuine, mate. It's just, I, I, yeah, love, I love what I you're think, doing, and I think it works. I, yeah. I can tell. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah, it would be wonderful to do that. Um, I've got to try and take on an agency. It's been a long time, you know. It's uh, it has been a long time, thirty something years since there has been new Thunderstick material put together. I I put an album out, as I said, two thousand and eleven, but that was just all remastered stuff, um, um, you know, that we put together. Um, this is the first album with new material, and so I would I just want to get out there and play it. But hmm. uh, yeah, that would be great. I also remember, I meant to ask you earlier, what happened to the album cover? Did I correctly read that there was a problem with the original album artwork and it had to be changed? Yeah, you did. Um, it was really quite strange. It came about um, out of the blue. We were actually in production. I took on um, uh, an artist that I've known for quite a while, a guy called uh, Baz, and um, Baz, Baz Wold, as his name is, on uh, Facebook. Right. And he, I asked him what I wanted, and uh, he, he said, okay, I'll have a look and put some stuff together. He did, but it, it really wasn't what I was after. I had the title already, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And um, he said, well, I've got this eye that I've had knocking about for a while. And he sent me a copy of it, and I went, oh, my God, that's perfect. And it's just this one eye. Um, and I thought, right, what we can do is we can put the image of Thunderstick of me pointing in the iris of the eye. So he went ahead and did it. And, uh, you know, we were backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, constantly updating it, changing it, etc. And then we eventually decided that we got there in the end. And um, I had submitted all the uh, graphic work for the for the booklet. We're putting a 20 page booklet out with this album. And um, that was that was that was great. It was you know thinking okay, it's in production now. Suddenly, a guy from Canada pops up and says that um, he had already done that particular piece of artwork, and that my uh, that my artist was copying his work. So Mm. we put the two side by side, and what it was was that it was a still from the original. Uh, 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre film and it was taken of the, I don't know if you've seen the film but the the one survivor that gets out, what it is there's this this pan they pan in from quite a distance and they go right in close to her eye and because she's been crying and screaming and this that and the others happened, her eyes are all puffy and the bloodshot, you know, and all this kind of thing. And that is where the two pieces of artwork had come from. This guy had done his and uh, his uh, you know look on it and his take on it, and my artist had done his take on it, and the two were very very similar. So we had to pull it. We just pulled it, and yeah. uh, we've now updated that artwork accordingly. 
Okay. God, that explains that, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Rightio. Um, I love your drumming. I mentioned earlier that I'm a bass player and sometime guitarist, so I do focus on the rhythmic aspect of an album. Your drumming almost harks back to the great days of the shuffle and groove found in blues, rock, R&B and jazz. Tell me, yeah. tell me all about your drumming. Um, okay, I started drumming when I was nine. Never had a lesson before. It was all sort of um, from the heart. Um, I had a lot of strange influences. Those influences being, uh, of course, Keith Moon, the great Keith Moon, totally mad and uh, so, you know, so explosive in his playing. Um, then there would be the other rock drummers that I really loved, they being obviously Ian Pace because of that kind of groove that he gets going. Um, and then we have uh, John Bonham. And then I go to a complete diversify from that to uh, it was a band called Gong with uh, Steve Hillage and uh, the one-time drummer was a guy called Pierre Merlin and uh, he had a lot of that, uh, it's very strange, a lot of hi-hat stuff going on and I, I really loved that. There's another band called Van de Graaff Generator that I really loved and the drummer within that. So I was a little bit like a, a sponge really. I, I I would absorb from all different areas and, and all different kind of you know different parts of the band and and yeah. i would just it, it just suddenly formulated a style i loved to be adventurous and i was lucky in samson in as much as that the bass player chris aylmer um would hammer everything to the floor he would you know yes. doing a perfect bass job keeping it all there and what i was lucky to do instead of being drummer bass com uh, you know combination I was able to play off of Paul Sampson, the guitarist. So Chris would keep everything nicely tight and, you know, right. bottom-ending and grouping, yep. whereas I could do all the fills with Paul. And we used to really sort of just play off of each other all the time. So um, I have a big kit. I've got quite a sizable kit. Um, it's very strange. that I, I look at all these small kits that people have now. They have, you know, they have the bass yeah. drum and they have only one rack tom. And one floor tom, and that's about it, really, isn't it? As well mm. as the snare. Um, I still, uh, you know, I'm still playing my original kit back from the day. So, yeah, it's quite a sizable kit. No, good on you, mate. I do listen to most albums with my musician lens, as I call it, because I do a lot of album reviews. And, um, man, I found myself coming back to what would I do as a bass player if I was playing to your drumming? And exactly right, I would be locking it down most of the yeah. time. So the bloke that you've got in there at the moment, sorry, I know you mentioned his name earlier. He's done a stellar job on the album, so he needs to be congratulated as well. Yeah, Rex. Rex, sorry. Rex yeah. Thunderbolt. Now, you would not believe that he actually had that surname for himself before I came on the scene. <laughs> Destiny. Alan, you've got to be kidding me. Your name is Rex Thunderbolt. Well, you're in then. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, he's, I mean, he has. He's interpreted what I do in a really nice way so that it does fit together quite well. Yeah, all of the musicians on the album have given Lucy enough space to do her thing really well, I think. And, you know, the um, I'll just talk about the vocal quickly again. Um, gosh, this is going to sound pretty odd, and I don't mean any... I don't want this to come across the wrong way, of course, but when I first listened to Don't Sleep With The Enemy, I couldn't tell if it was a male or female singing. Um, so I thought, gosh, okay, this is a brand new not brand new, but it's a very original type of singing. And then, of course, I can see that she's a very attractive young lady in the pictures and all the rest of it. And then I thought, aha, now I can put it there. But 
Mate, I think what you've been able to do is you've been able to, the musicians have been able to give Lucy a stage within the performance itself. So a virtual stage, if you like, sonics, a virtual or a sonic stage within the performance itself. And uh, it's the first time I've actually heard a vocal like hers before. Yeah, very much so. She, when we when we were talking before we had recorded, she said that she was able to do. We we, we changed some some stuff. Some of the uh, the vocal lines I had to change because obviously Jody had sung them in the past, and Lucy couldn't either get that high or it didn't suit her voice. So you know, we we changed a lot around. Not a lot, but enough. Um, but she said that she can sing vocal uh, uh, male vocal uh, uh, melody lines so for her to do right. that was perf- perfect okay. for me because yeah i could you know i was actually when i first thought about putting it all together i never even contemplated putting a, a male vocal there but then when she told me that i thought oh that's great because i get the best of best of both worlds really okay all right. Okay. Glad. Yeah. I'm. I'm glad my intuition wasn't off there. Then, if that's the case, it might just be the case that she is doing to your exact point there, male vocal melodies, and that's what I was hearing because I have played in a lot of bands, and I was just thinking, shit, this is some stuff that I'd love to put some backing vocals to. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, unfortunately, we the, also the the sparsity of of allowing her her own vocal performance within the arrangement purely became out of a necessity really because um we were up against time in the yep. studio because uh, you know i was paying for it and you have to try and get things down quickly so there wasn't time in the studio to do all these lush backing vocals and and what have you i would have liked to have done them but Having said that, the sparsity has worked within the band. So um, I, I'm actually quite pleased that we didn't go down that route and we kept it nice and empty. Uh, bar, Likewise, I know, think it sounds great. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. 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 Thank um, you. Okay, so let's go back a bit further. If Wikipedia is to be, to be believed your last release, that I'm talking about official release of new material, was in 1984. Uh, that's a Thunderstick album, Beauty and the Beast. So this is a very broad broad question here, mate, but that's well over 30 years ago. What have you been up to in the decades since? <laughs> okay, well, um, since that time, I've been playing. We I got back together with Paul Samson and Chris Aylmer, and we did um, some reunion gigs, um, Japan, and we did the States and, and places like that. Um, unfortunately, neither of them are with us anymore. Both Both of them died of cancer. Um, okay. Chris with throat, throat cancer and uh, Paul shortly after. Uh, sorry, around the other way. Paul died, and then Chris died about a sort of couple of years afterwards. Um, so Samson stuff. We were lucky enough to put that together and do some shows, and we did some recording. Um, when Bruce Dickinson left, uh, the guy that took over was a guy called Nicky Moore, and. Um, which was really good fun for me to go back to the, as it were, the mothership and and start doing Samson material again. Uh, we did that, and I've been sort of um, busy doing my own sort of bits and pieces and playing for other people and just real kind of low profile stuff. I've just I've continued playing, and I I had a daughter. I got married and had a daughter, and I've spent a lot of time. You know, kind of with her, and you know, yeah, like, doing dad things. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah, yeah. Living, living life. I was fortunate enough to do that that I didn't have to go out 
and uh, you know do a nine to five and slog and uh, it's just lucky really and uh, yeah <laughs> I have been playing all the time though so if you've been playing in cover bands or you've been doing session work what have you been up yeah. to musically not not so much cover just session work and uh, yeah recording with other people um, just uh, not even putting my name to it just playing with other people and writing and Hmm. What have you, all that sort oh, of thing. Oh, good on you. Yeah, God, I've done a lot of that, not putting my name to things. You just sort of help out and just do something here or there because you like the idea of being creative and contributing to somebody's creativity. That's exactly right. Wow. You couldn't put it better myself. That's exactly the why I do it. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful, mate. So, all right. Um, I'm now going to ask a few questions about your time in Iron Maiden and Samson, if that's okay, because I think I'll start getting hate mail if I don't ask these two questions since I've got the opportunity <laughs> to chat to you. <laughs> okay. Let's start with Samson, and that's a band that counted the iconic Bruce Dickinson as its front man. What are your thoughts? What are, you, what are your thoughts about your time in the band? Um, oh, blimey. Um, it was... Uh, a work in progress in as much as that I, uh, when we got together with Bruce, we had a plethora of material, both, uh, both uh, the three of us, Paul, Chris and I and Bruce. Um, and so we were able to put together what was head on quite quickly. And um, it was a time when Thunderstick as a character um, was in its formulative years, and and I was slowly <laughs> becoming this this mad thing behind a mask. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was very straight. It was very much full on all the time. Um, because what had happened was because of punk, punk had made this appearance, and suddenly everybody was on the punk bandwagon record labels only wanted to uh, record and uh, and sign up punk bands um you would have uh, bookers and agents only wanting to book punk bands i mean it was a bad bad time for any kind of solid rock musicians yes yep and um it needed it though i, I mean music business did need that big shake-up and that energy and that uh, you know just chuck everything to the to the wall and see what sticks um so there was after punk had actually was starting to die its own death and and uh, the uh, punk musicians had uh, kind of <laughs> theoretically thrown their babies out of the pram and, yeah become and caricatures of themselves yeah, yeah of themselves yeah exactly i mean there were a few bands that really you know to this day you hold in in awe and i think that are, are great bands like the damned i love the damn awesome and yep. uh, you know obviously the sex pistols but anyway that there was all this underlying um, current of lots of bands ready to come back on the scene and those bands had, had listened to prog rock in back in the day and so they had learned how to play their instruments and so when this movement came about, this new wave of British heavy metal came about, that was the reason that it came about, because there were all these underground bands ready to go. And as soon as uh, the tide changed a little bit, there they were. So it was an exciting time and uh, exciting for me in, in Samson because I had formulated this lunatic character and I was just kind of seeing how far I could push that. Yeah, I... I, I like that 
you know, your term, but the lunatic character. I really like the idea of that, and I don't think there's that much uh, of that around these days. Or you get bands that are, with all due respect, I say this, so nothing against the bands, but they're very earnest bands like Slipknot and Mushroom Head, and yeah. they're very heavy, you know? They're very heavy yeah. and they're very angry. Or then you get the black metal stuff, which is all about this theatrical aspect of Satan or God knows whatever else they carry on about. But your stuff seemed to have a very healthy sense or a dose of humour, humour about yeah. it. It was fun. It was fun. That's it was exciting. It. Well, I can give you a, I can give you a little bit of an anecdote regarding that. Um, around the time that I joined Samson, um, it was a time that there were no there was no social media. Of course, there was no DVDs. There was the the way that bands got to their fans were purely by putting an album out and uh, going out and playing it live. And the only thing that that promoted that band were music business publications, e.g. music press every week and, and the, the magazines. And within that, you would have a, a poster maybe of the band that you could stick on your bedroom wall and what have you. And I, I thought that most of the, the uh, bands that had that, you would never know who the drummer was. You would know the guitarist because he was down the front and posing and the singer, of course. And then you look at this guy's head at the back there covered by a row of cymbals and, and hardware. For <laughs> uh, you know, that, all right, there were exceptions to the rule like Keith Moon and, you know, that sort of thing. But for the mainstay, that's the way it was. And so I thought, you know what? I will create a faceless drummer. And by putting that mask on and becoming the faceless drummer, I managed to get far more press than I ever would would have done should I had I not done that yep. and just sat there as the drummer in the interviews. People wanted to to talk to me and see for themselves. You know, there was all kinds of weird and wonderful things that we had happen as well when I because I, I started actually living that character. And hmm. anyway, what was happening at the time in the UK was that um, women's emancipation was really quite. Uh, quite a, a, an ongoing angry type of um of setup of women and they looked at my image and seeing the image on the posters outside the gigs we were playing um they took real offense at it because they thought that it belittled women and uh, the whole thing about yeah, it right. was really quite threatening um, as you've just rightly said, that was no further further than the truth. You could not get because I always I always imagined Thunderstick as a bit of a, a kind of knockabout character as well. Yeah. But anyway, they, they started ripping all our posters down and what have you. So when I actually did put my own band together, that was the very reason that I put a female vocalist at the front was because I thought I'm not going to go down that route again and and have you know, people saying, oh, he glorifies this and it's terrible and that. I, I, by putting a female at the front, I could turn around and say, well, you go and talk to her. And then, she, you know, because she'll tell you how, how she's treated within the band, how she's treated within the business, etc. So that's why I did it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I started living Thunderstick and that was a bit strange. Because before we would, you know, when we were on tour, there were support bands that never actually saw me at all. Very much like the Kiss persona. 
Um, I didn't even wouldn't be able yep. to tell you who who Thunderstick was. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I do hold tours as Thunderstick, and it really got a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of I didn't know where to draw the line between Barry Graham Perkis and Thunderstick. They started getting merged at one point, and it was a bit odd. Yeah, <laughs> bit bit of life imitating art starting to take over. Yeah, yes, it was that. <laughs> okay, and. Mate, how do you remember Bruce back in the day? Because, I mean, of course, I was, God, I was only a very small child back then, but he doesn't seem to have changed much based on his singing style, stage presence and demeanour in interviews. But what's your take on what he was like as a person back then? Was he a good bloke to be around? Uh, he was young <laughs> and um, he was energetic. He was, uh, he was able, he'd come from uni, university, um, he didn't uh, think that we could we could go to an agent. Why why pay an agent when you can book a tour yourself? So he was that sort of person. He would go into the management's offices, lock himself in a room, and come out with a tour at the end of it. You know, by phoning up everybody and, and putting together a Samson tour yeah. of of his own making. Um, he was um, very energetic and and had lots of ideas. And you could tell that he was, you know, people ask me this all the time. Did you know that he was going to turn into this, you know, this modern man of today? Um, no, obviously you couldn't. Oh, but yeah. he did have some kind of energy that was constantly driving him all the time. And, uh, yeah, he was, he, he was a reasonable guy to be around. I mean, um, I spent most of my time with Paul when I was with Samson because we live quite near to each other. Okay. Yep. So I didn't really used to go out a great deal with Bruce, but um, yeah, I mean, what can you say about the guy? He's a, he's a man of today, isn't he? He really is. Well, he's done it. He's achieved a hell of a lot. I mean, besides oh. Iron Maiden, I think this aircraft yeah. thing that he's got going on is, I mean, how the hell does he find the time and energy to do both? Indeed. Indeed. You know, when they're not doing that, He's, he's, you know, putting together um, some kind of uh, project in in brewing real a uh, real ale. I mean, I don't. I, do you do you get Trooper in in uh, Australia? The Iron Is Maiden it? beer, the Trooper, the yeah. Iron Maiden beer. Oh, look, yeah. you can you can get it in some select places, but. You know, it's probably double the price of what you pay over in the UK. And is it really? Don't get me wrong. Is it really that good a beer that you'd pay double for it? If you know what I'm saying. I've never tried it. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, seriously, I've never tried it. But I know that it's available in my local supermarket. You walk straight in there and there's Trooper on the shelves, which is it's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's the new thing, isn't it, for musicians to start diversifying and trying to get – it's yeah. almost like they look at the whole – I don't know whether I can term it any other way, but the ecosystem that the fans exist in and go a bit like what Gene Simmons and Paul Simmons yeah. did remarkably yeah. well back yeah. in the day to this day. Um, but do you not do you not think that I made maybe learnt from from that because one of the major first major tours that I did were as support to Kiss, and uh, so I would imagine Rod Smallwood was watching and thinking, you know what, this is going to come in really useful. This uh, well, I think this, you've, I think you just hit the nail on the head right there. With all due respect to Ari and Bruce and and um, 
uh, Dave and Adrian and the like, and the and the guys in the band. Sorry, Nico, mate. I think Rod Smallwood is the is the key factor. Is the X factor of their success. Now, I don't. I've been a massive Maiden fan all my entire life, so no disrespect to the band or the band's members whatsoever. But at the end of the day, they are a massive, massive marketing machine in 2017, and I think you're spot on. I think that they've looked at what Gene and Paul have done, and I'm a big fan of Gene and Paul's as well. So there's no disrespect here. They're just offering fans what their fans want, which is a heap of merchandise with their logo plastered on it. Yeah, as well as that, you've got to tap into the lifestyle as well. The big, the big Iron Maiden family, the worldwide family. I mean, it, look at merchandising. When you go to a different area that you're playing, you put together a T-shirt specifically for that area. Not so much just the country, but for that area as well. Yeah, I've only, so I've only just noticed that. I went to the Guns N' Roses gig that Axel and Co. toured here in Australia earlier on in the year, and they had a T-shirt for bloody Brisbane, mate. Now, you've been to Australia, I assume, mate. We're like the third biggest city in Australia in a relatively yeah. small country, and yet they produced a T-shirt just for little old us. Yeah, that's it. That is just marketing to the to the nth degree isn't it i mean it really is well i bought the, one yeah <laughs> the end, you know i had a guy once turn around and say to me you know what? i was always frightened of thunderstick and i said why is that he said because i knew this is when you know when they just come out of school and were coming to our gigs and he said because i knew that eddie wasn't real whereas thunderstick was real and so therefore that that freaked me out a little bit more to have a, a living you know, a living I iconic person. Yeah. yeah. And whereas Eddie's Eddie's just the way you can market that it's just phenomenal. Had it not been for Eddie, it's uh, you know that that great big as you said the marketing machine. It is huge. It's absolutely huge, and they are bigger and stronger than they've ever been before in 2017. To be able to release an album and have it go to number one in country's charts throughout the whole of the world is insane. It really is, isn't it? I've been around long enough to see the transition, okay? So I was a fan of the band in the late 80s and right the way through and Blaze Bailey was in the band as well. I got right into The X Factor and uh, didn't really like Virtual Eleven, the album after that, that much. But I was really pleased in year 2000 or 99 when it was announced that Bruce would return. But... Mate, I started to see people who never listened to heavy metal all of a sudden go, yes, I know Iron Maiden and I like Iron Maiden. And I thought something really weird's happening here. It's not like with Kiss where everybody sort of knows I was made for loving you. People, you, you were seeing really attractive young ladies at, in, in nightclubs asking for the number of the beast and, and even Hallowed Be Thy Name. Like these are the sort of songs that they were starting to play. And it took a few years, like, it, you know, there's a bit of a lag time between 2000 and I think I noticed a tipping point around about 2005 to 2008. But all of a sudden, Iron Maiden became the people's band. They were no longer just a heavy metal band. Yeah, indeed. And they and they really worked that as well. You know, that big, yes. we're all in this together. They, You know, there is no colour or creed or religion or anything like that. You are all part of the Iron Maiden family. And it's a very, very clever really clever industry to be in well it's it's really interesting having a talk to you about this mate because people do know you were actually in iron maiden so yeah the whole evolution of eddie the ed and ari becoming mm. this larger than life based monolith that he is and he's a influence on me i must say you know I've, as a kid i looked at him and bought all of the base magazines with him in it and um 
Mate, what was the band like back in those days? And I will ask you this question. I know it's a really bloody obvious question, but I do need to ask it. Did you have any idea things would blow up and become as big as what they were, or even an inkling? You know how you mentioned how Bruce was always very studious and always had this energy about him? Was there that same energy in Iron Maiden when you were in them? Yeah, but it was it was strange because it was shared between Steve and the singer. For When I first joined Maiden, I thought it was the singer's band, and the singer of that time was a guy called Dennis Wilcock, and yeah. I thought it was his band, but then, you know, it soon became apparent that it wasn't his band. Steve would come over, because all the guys were from the East End, and I was a bit of a kind of, I was alienated from that, because I, I came from the south of London, right. and uh, what happened was Steve used to come up to my house, and we'd go through bass and drum parts and because uh, I had a, a room that I'd soundproofed. And so he was able to come up and we'd go through all these bits of, of uh, music, just purely bass and drums. And I'd never done that before. I'd worked hard within, you know, within a band and rehearsed within a band. But I'd never gone and done that, you know, dissecting by putting bass and drum parts together. And this is 1977. I thought, wow, this is different. Um, and so... Yes, it was it was work in progress, much the same as I said about Samson. It was a band that wanted to get better, wanted to get slicker. Um, we all liked material that uh, you know we found that was um, very intrinsic type of material. You know, clever stuff such as Rush, Twenty One Twelve, and all that kind of thing. He liked uh, Kansas. He liked uh, UFO. And, and those sort of bands. Yep. And so we were kind of trying to evolve and trying to, but I, no, you, there's no way that you could think that the only thing that gave it away was when I was re-asked to join um, after we toured together yep. and, uh, and Dougie Sampson had left before Clive Burr joined. Um, I went along, it was Christmas. To, it was two days after Christmas because Steve phoned me up. As I say, we'd been doing this tour. Samson and I made an Angel Witch, and um, they'd seen me play every night with Samson, so they knew exactly what I was capable of doing and how I played and my style, etc. And uh, anyway, the, we finished this tour, and the phone went, and it was Steve Harris, and he said, um, "You're not going to believe this, but you, uh, would you be up for coming back and joining the band again?" And I was like, "Whoa." My I, my um, Thunderstick image was just beginning to take off, and it was becoming, you know, quite big. And and all the rest. they obviously didn't want that; they wanted me. So I said, "Can I have you know a Christmas period to think about it?" So we 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 had Christmas. Two days later, I went and played with them. They hired a kit in, and we went and played. <laughs> and this is the only time that uh, that I thought, you know, maybe maybe this is going to happen big. Is that Rod Smallwood was there? And he said to me, you know what? This band is going to be bigger than Led Zeppelin ever were. And at the time, I thought, well, that's really nice as a manager to believe in his, <laughs> yeah. in his bands to, to that degree. But um, I guess he was right. He really was right, wasn't he? And only because of time. I mean, everybody loves Zeppelin. And it was only because they were a product of their time and I am made now a product of their time now. And as you rightly said, social media has blown the doors out. They've blown the doors in completely. And and you have that kind of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that you can promote 
endlessly mm. throughout the whole mm. of the world in no time at all. You can do a gig in a church hall or a stadium and people can either watch it live there and then or within seconds somebody else on the other side of the world can watch it. Whereas Led Zeppelin didn't have that, obviously, because they were a product of their time. But that's it. Yes, yeah, Moore was saying that and I thought, you know what, maybe he's right. And and there was a period when Samson was still level pegging with, with Maiden and then bit by bit we had a lot of trouble with management problems mm, yep. and one, one thing or another and we lost ground quite considerably and that was that. So I had a chat to Les McEwen just talking about uh, management issues, completely different genre but a very nice bloke and an awesome interview subject with Les McEwen from the band The Bay City Rollers and you're probably aware, mate, that they had all sorts of issues with management back in the day but how did you fare, mate? Did you have, I mean, you sort of alluded to it there with Samson but with Thunderstick and the like, have you had a, a fairly, uh, you know, uh, standard road insofar as you've had to be really careful of which management you've dealt with or have you had a, a decent ride or have you been ripped off? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all the above. <laughs> we took our management that we thought were great, but it didn't work. And uh, I went from one management to another because when I put Thunderstick together, I wanted to try and, um, you know, actually the kind of progress that we'd made or the progress individually that I'd made as a member of Samson, I had to try and keep that that kind of profile up there as as much as I possibly can because anybody in the music industry can tell you that it, you know you're uh, you're riding high at the moment but in a couple of days nobody knows you and so you have to kind kind of keep that profile going so of course you've got musicians that you take on who want pain <laughs> uh, perish the thought but they do they want pain and uh, so I would get lurch from one management to another. And I, within Thunderstick, I've had quite a few managers, yeah. Um, none have been the right one because I would be as big as ACDC now if they had been the right one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially after all the compliments that you've been giving me about this album. Well, you certainly <laughs> deserve to have been. There's no doubt about that because the talent's there. It's just it's such a weird thing in music industry, isn't it? I mean, look, I've, I've just left my job as, as a telecommunications account executive, okay? I've got a condition called ulcerative colitis, which means that I really can't be in a corporate environment in the bloody 12 and 14 hour days that are required there and the stress of those sorts of jobs because frankly mate it'll kill me eventually and i've always been tell, andrew tell me what that is because I th you're the second person that has actually mentioned that disease in the last week i was talking to somebody else the other yeah. day and they were talking about their wife i was talking walking with the with him taking the dogs for a walk so what what happens with that tell me so um the technical uh, description would be that the lower part of my colon or my intestine, um, I don't know how else to say this, so I'll just say it near my rectum, it's all ulcerated, so it bleeds. So consequently, excuse my language, listeners, I shit blood whenever I go to the bathroom. Um, oh, man, I, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, and various things can aggravate it. So if I drink too much, unfortunately, so I'm pretty much having to give up the drinking. Um, not that I'm a big drinker or anything like that, but you do like having a bevy with your buddies. Who doesn't? But I think I'm going to have to give that away fairly soon. Um, stress is a big one, mate. Jesus, I didn't realize how much stress I was carrying because of my job until I left it and I lost three kilos in the first week. And, of course, miraculously, the symptoms that I suffer because of ulcerative colitis started to... Well, they're not disappearing. They're not disappearing completely, but they're starting to um, ebb, dissipate. if you like. Yeah, dissipate, yeah. if you like. Yeah, I personally have to be very careful because in my job I was traveling a lot and I'd frequently end up in hospitals. So 
I wasn't, I mean, I was typical bloody male, mate. I wasn't taking the medication that I was supposed to be taking. And then I'd wonder why I'd, I'd be up in Cairns, which is in far north Queensland. And I'd wake up because I'd do a lot of traveling with the job, as I say, and go into the office, wherever office I might be and think, geez, I don't feel that well. And I used to try to go to a pub and have a meal and a beer and I couldn't even finish anything. And then go back and then feel like shit and then go on the plane and my wife would pick me up from the airport and then a day later I'd end up in the hospital um so that's what it is I mean and and I feel sorry for you I mean I know I suffer from it but I feel sorry for anybody that suffers from it mate if you can believe it I have a mild version of it um I just had a um a colonoscopy uh two weeks ago and I've come out with a two thumbs up I've just got to keep on taking medication the like but what it meant for me mate was that I had to reevaluate my entire lifestyle I had to change everything because, mate, there's something, and I don't mind acknowledging this publicly, mate, you you suffer anxiety because of it, because you never know when it's going to strike. And it's, you could be in the middle of a meeting with somebody. Now, being a telecommunications account executive, I used to have quite robust meetings with people and they're not arguments, but they're robust discussions about financial matters and technical matters and the like. And then bang, it would hit me and I'd be in so much pain. And I'd think, how the hell do I manage this? And eventually I said, I've got two small kids, one daughter age four, one daughter age two and a half. I love my wife. I, I do. I don't want to die anytime soon. My father died very young. Um, he died of cancer, and I thought, I've got his constitution. I'm susceptible to whatever it is that's going to get me. I need to focus on lifestyle. So I try as much as I can to cook my own food and cook for the family and do a lot of this sort of stuff. And I think what it's done is made of, of you know, I've, I've done well financially, so I've been able to do things like you know, I've paid off the house, that sort of thing. So okay, I, yeah. and, and I own the cars, you know, we don't own great cars, but you know what I mean? I haven't gone and bought bloody BMWs yeah. and Mercedes and Audis, if you know what I'm saying. We drive Toyotas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I know that's a well, long, long response for you, but yeah, that's what it is. Uh, um, yeah. I asked the question, mate. So I'm really, you know, don't know what to say. But you've obviously made the right decision because, as you say, you want to see your kids grow up. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think, I think that it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether the diagnosis is growing or just, sorry, I don't know whether more people are actually getting the illness or the condition or the diseases is actually a disease. Um, or it's just, it's being diagnosed more. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we live in a world where anxiety is just incredible and stress is absolutely incredible i mean every single day you would not believe the problems that i've had trying to do this album i won't bore you with it because it's just all semantics but i mean from from the day one up until right now the amount of problems and the stress with it has been quite incredible <laughs> no i, I mean, can imagine so, that yeah so it's so it's so gratifying when i hear somebody like you saying you know you really enjoy it and you like listening to it that's great because it does make all the the stress worthwhile but it has been quite a heavy load to bear for quite a while now so well i look I, you know i hope it's worth it too mate because when, when i say I hope it's worth it it should be worth it because you've got a wonderful album you've got a wonderful product out there you've got a great band around you i just mate i just hope enough people get to listen to it because people have such short bloody attention spans at the moment yeah yeah you know and they they tend to not give things a chance either is is the other thing but i think that there's enough immediate energy with your material that mate i only listened to it for 30 seconds i went holy shit this is great yeah Yeah. i really enjoyed this I'm, i'm kind of in a dichotomy with that really because my background says iron maiden samson heavy metal but my music has never been heavy metal it's always been that classic rock you know that kind of feel to it i i I loved bands 
like mountain um and yeah leslie west yeah oh well well, you know just the band he and the three of them you know felix papillardi leslie west and corky lang the three of them together incredible i mean the guy could just put a jack plug into an amp turn his guitar up and he would sound like leslie west whereas all these days you've got these guitarists that put about 100 processors you know everything's going through yes shitloads of stuff into the amp and they still don't sound as good as he sounded <laughs> no so. that's a lost art mate there's there's a guitarist that i've recently he's another guy that i think i don't know whether you guys could ever do anything together but a swedish guitarist he's a maestro his name's marcus jadell and he's in um you know the band Candlemas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Leif Edling, the bass player, he's got a couple of other bands, or he's associated with a couple of other bands. Two of them are the Doomsday Kingdom and Avatarium, and Marcus Jadell is the guitarist for both of those bands, and boy, oh, boy, is he an excellent guitarist. Um, I yeah. inter- interviewed him a few months ago, but he is exactly what you just mentioned there. He's the sort of guitarist that I feel if he plugs into any amp through any guitar, he would do enough for me to go, that's Marcus's playing, and that's a dying yeah. art, isn't it? It's a lost it art. Is. Yeah. It is. It is indeed. You know. But, you know. All right, mate. I'm just going to do a time check because we have been talking for an hour now, and I've got got a few more questions that I can ask, believe me, but how are we going for time on your side? I'm fine with you, mate. I'm in my office, so no problem at all. All right. Now, this is only the third time that I've done this, okay? So typically what I do is I have three questions that I ask all of my interview subjects, but I want to extend it to 10 if that's okay. And this has got nothing to do with music. This is a bit of a segue to some of that, that personal exchange we just had before, actually. I'd like for the listeners to get to know you, mate, okay? okay. So that's what these 10 questions are all about. So the first question is this. Choose three words to describe yourself. Oh, bloody hell. Uh, that's not two of them, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's almost three. <laughs> um, adventurous, hopeful, and indecisive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's the second question, and this will be interesting to hear the answer to this one. If you could go back to when you were 18 and give yourself some advice, what do you think you'd say? Oh, wow. What would I say? I mean, I'm so proud of the fact that I've managed to, for such a long time, stick at something that I I really enjoy doing. Um, But I would say, go and get yourself a a degree in accountancy (laughs) and law law before you start playing with music. (laughs) Yep. Agreed, and it's not the first time I've heard that one, unfortunately, but it sort of harks back yeah. to uh, the discussion that I had there with Les from uh, Bay City Rollers, mate. I don't know what it is about managers and wanting to take bloody uh, artists for a ride, mate, but it's just chronic. It's because you... I'll tell you why. Because I think that musicians wear their hearts on their sleeves. Soon as you, soon as you write something, it is you. It, it takes on a life of its own. And unfortunately, a lot of managers don't have that. They They have... They have their knowledge in, you know, uh, advertising and uh, and anything else, you know, that they bring to the table. But they don't have that inner emotion that says, this is me. This What you're listening to 
is me. It's part of me. And they don't see that at all. And so they just steamroll it right the way across all that artistic, artistic crap, artistic license. What's all that about? Mm. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, as a musician, you get really, you really get hurt. I mean, you can read a hundred, hundred great reviews that say your album's wonderful, but you're, you'll actually you know the, the one that is a bad review and says no he's got nothing new to offer etc etc that's the one that will stick in your mind all the time yes. and unfortunately that's, that's the way it is with being a musician or an artist of any kind an author somebody who you know anything that is artistic you lay your heart on your sleeve and that's it and people trample on it yeah, yeah it's sad though isn't it sad that it says a lot about human nature in one way I don't want to be too negative about it but I think it does Mm, yeah. Right. All right. Question three. Here we go. What five guests, living or dead, from any time in history, would you invite to dinner? Oh God. <laughs> okay. Jimi Hendrix. Um, Jack the Ripper. Mm, okay. I'd love. I'd love to know who he was. Um. Oh my God. Uh, um. <laughs> I think uh, I don't know. It's, it's ooh, that's quite a hard one. There's so many people I look look up to. Alice Cooper, I suppose. Yep. Because just for the the anecdotes, just, uh, that would be a wonderful guest at uh, dinner as well, wouldn't he? Yep. Um, I'd like to uh, maybe my daughter, when I'm not around anymore, the ability to come back. And be able to sit and have a dinner with your grown-up daughter, which would be good. That would be oh, nice yeah. to see yeah. to see who she she became after you'd gone. Yep. Um, how many is that? Four. That's four. Yep. Um, mm, um, I have to think about the fourth, the uh, fifth. <laughs> ask me. Ask me the next one. I'll come back to that one. All right. Here we go. If you had a time machine and could visit any time in history, what time would you visit and why? I'd go back to Victorian England um, just because it was such a, a, um, a kind of a period that it seems to be uh, very... Um, oh, it's. I'd like to go back and experience all, all of that, you know, the way that, that England managed to sort of become what it be, has become nowadays and a lot of it is because of the victorian days you know the yeah. the um, yeah. brunel and people like that so i would love to go back and experience that yeah that would be really good victorian england cool good answer to that question actually okay so question number five is what is your most treasured possession and why frank zappa would be the other one great oh god he'd be a wonderful uh, dinner guest wouldn't he frank yes zappa. Indeed, that would be, you know, you just sit there with your mouth open listening to this guy. Oh, you would. So, no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah, very interesting character. Yeah. Okay, sorry, what was the next one? So question five is, what is your most treasured possession and why? Um, my family. Yep. Um, I don't need to go into why, because I love them. Your family, <laughs> simple as that. That would yeah. be my answer too to that one there, yep. I mean, it can be an emotional possession, and that's what that is. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a physical possession, though. Yep. No, no. Okay, next question. Question number... I mean, if it was, if it was physical, it would be my bloody Land Rover. 
that has just <laughs> that, that I've hemorrhaged money at over the last God knows how many years. But I still love the bloody thing. I get inside it and I think I really love this. But oh, <laughs> child, God. what have you got? A, have you got a discovery? Have you? Yeah, have you? How did you guess? Oh, you're a discovery <laughs> yeah. kind of a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, cool, mate. All right, okay. Um, question number six is. You can take three items to a deserted island for a week. What would you take and why? Boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would have to have some something to play music on, whatever it be. Um, music player, yep. Yeah, music player, definitely. Um, I don't do sort of – I don't do kind of independence that well, really. Um I like my own company, and it's it's nice to be you know be on your own a couple of times a few times, and uh, you're able to sort of think and get things in perspective and all that. But I don't really do you know individuality that well. So I guess it would have to be I'd, I'd, it'd have to be another person. Okay. <laughs> I would have to if if I was on a island, something to play music, another person. And a boat. Okay, sweet. Good answer to that one. That works for me. Okay, so question number seven. Name a book that you've read that you would recommend, and what would you recommend that book? Oh, the well, very last one that I've just been reading has been really, really good, and that was uh, by Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface in the original um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974. And because it's such an iconic film um, and it's it was done on such a, a shoestring budget, etc. Um, why, you know, the, the guy goes on, he he takes the, takes the whole story in real time. So obviously when you're filming something, you don't film in real time. You do different scenes at different times, etc. But he writes that in real time so he he explains what they did how they did it etc etc and then after he's finished about the film he then goes into about three or four chapters as to what horror films what sort of idiom why they why they are considered to be horror films how they are considered to be horror films or terror and he is very learned. The guy is very, very learned and um, really quite fascinating to read. So yeah, it was a, a great book, Sweet. and it only came about only came about because of the, um, the you know the contesting about the original cover. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, no, thanks for that. Okay. So anybody out there, get into that book there. Yeah. Um, okay. Question number eight. This is another interesting question. I'm really keen to hear your response to this one here. If you could obtain an audience with the Dalai Lama, what question would you ask? That's very strange as well, because recently there's been a um, a thing on television with uh, a, a woman called Joanna Lumley. Oh, yeah, from and, Absolutely uh, Fabulous, yeah. Yeah, that's it, you know, yeah, yeah, okay. And she's done a travel thing, and um, she's travelled all throughout India, and she got an audience with the Dalai Lama. Gosh, what, she, what would she ask? <laughs> I, can't remember what, I, I can't remember what what it was that she asked, but I mean, the answer that he came back, you, you ended up with your mouth opening and just saying, "Wow, such a nice, unbelievable aura about the guy," 
And 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 so you know, you think about what he's what he's gone through, the way that he's been ousted from his own country yeah. and all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, with China, and and yet this guy just absolutely is kind of love and calmness personified. It's really quite amazing. So I probably would ask him how I would go about achieving that kind of that oneness and that uh, that inner happiness because I'm always. I seem to be always at odds with myself. Um, not all the time, obviously. People aren't like that, but people are complex. And, it, you know, everybody thinks that they know other people. Oh, I know mm. him because he's a laugh. And, yeah, but you don't know him because you only see that one side of him. You might yes. see him down in the bar, in the pub or whatever. And, every you know, he's got that face on. But what happens when he goes home and he puts his other face on? So it's, uh, yeah, how I would obtain that, that kind of inner tranquility, as it were. Yeah, and it's ironic that the Chinese caused so much disruption for the Dalai Lama and his people, but I think yeah. it was the Chinese that invented the uh, theory of the yin and the yang. So are you the white yeah. dot and the black part, or are you the black dot and the white part? Yeah. You know what I mean? And they knew that yeah. back then, that we are very yeah. complex beings. You know, we sometimes the sun, and sometimes we're the sun's light that reflects from the moon. Um, yeah. and I think he just said something very profound there. Yeah. It's, you know, we're all, what's the old, old ancient Indian saying, American Indian or North American Indian saying about, you know, um, oh God, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's, um, you know, there are two wolves and one of them is, is, um, angry and one of them's happy. I don't know. It's a very simplified version of the, the fable, but, um, you know, and uh, the one that grows the most is the one you feed. In other words, which thoughts do you pay most attention to? That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. very profound, it mate. Would be, it would probably be the angry one because he would be the one that would be snapping at you all, all the time and demanding attention. Well, that's um, true, yeah. but I think sometimes you need – I mean, you, there's no question you need both in this earthly plane in this dimension, yeah. don't you? You actually need to have both, and, and but you just need to be wise enough to know when to call on which one of the two. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. You know? All right, second last question. Of deep, the... very deep. Deep we're getting there. Mate, we have. <laughs> T tends to happen, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, actually, I will make this comment. I do notice that musicians like you and I, mate, we do have the capacity to go this deep. It is a feature of being a musician. I don't know what it is, but I've never met a musician that doesn't have that fourth dimension or the understanding. Oh, that's, you know? that's it. Yeah, you have to have that. I'm sure you have to have that. You know? But in a soul-searching... I think so. I and think you needed to be creative, yeah. And you're never happy with what you achieve. I mean, I hear people like yourself saying how great the album is and all that kind of thing, and I think, but I didn't get that mix right, and I didn't get that sound right, and this this was a bit sloppy when it could have been a bit tighter and all that. And it's only the me that sees that, but you, but I would still beat myself up over over it. And it's it's <laughs> knowing when you have to, knowing where you stop and you go, no, that's it, that's it time to say goodbye and let that one go what's that old saying about art just it's never finished it's just abandoned i think that's yeah. it right there <laughs> that's great yeah, that's wonderful <laughs> all right my second last question of the evening uh well evening for me and uh, early afternoon for your good self just yep. describe your happiest memory that you're willing to share with the audience <laughs> oh my god <sighs> music yeah, has it got to be musically or has it just got to be... Oh, anything, really. Anything. This is all about you. My daughter, birth my daughter. See, my my wife had to have a, a C-section mm. and 
she didn't see our daughter born, and I did because they, you know, they put this big sort of uh, this great big sheet. Big sheet. I've been there twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went round the other side of the sheet to have a look. Oh and God! So yeah, I they didn't allow me to do that. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. So I saw my daughter in my in my uh, wife's body. So, and the weirdest thing was that when she was born. The very first thing that came out my my wife's um, mouth was she looked at her and said she's been here before. Oh, very and nice. Was, yeah, an old soul. Yeah, and that was, re- I mean, profound or what? She just said that out of the blue. It just just seconds, you know, after after giving birth, they put her in her arms and she looked at her and said she's been here before. And I thought, whoa. So. Mm. What does your what, what does your daughter do as a vocation? What does she do for a living? She has just um, she's she's just turned, she's twenty one, um, and she has just finished uh, university doing psychology. And oh, there you go. Teacher, yeah, right there. Teacher, oh yeah, yeah. You know, she's she's come to the conclusion that both her parents are crazy and totally <laughs> mad. So uh, nothing new there. And uh, she yeah she does um, she. What what she does as a pastime is um, she loves weight training, a bit like I do. I I, I haven't been in a gym for a long time now, but uh, it's where we met. Uh, both my wife and I met in a gym. Cool. So uh, yeah, that's all new for her, and yeah, we're, we're looking to see what she does. You know, with her life, we obviously wanted to go on and do well. She's almost looking at maybe doing another another year as a master's degree. Yet she's not sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's she's just come home. She's been home a couple of well, one day now, so. Okay. Oh well, good on her. Well, mapping mapping the mind and understanding the complex stream of human emotions, we need somebody to do that, and that's the psychiatrist yeah. or psychologist's job to do yeah. that, isn't it? So, no, good yeah. on her, mate. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Final question. Here we go. If you were called on to provide advice to world leaders, so if you could give a keynote address to the leaders of all of the nations of the world that participate in the UN, what would you say? What did I say? Um, I would say probably why. And the reason I would say why is because why is it so important to try and be one above uh, another country or another leader? And why is it so important to try and make sure that, uh, you know, you believe in their doctrine and their their lifestyle or their their religion or whatever why is it so important for for countries to do that surely there should be it should be just harmonious it's otherwise we're not going to be around any any longer i mean it's just terrible the world of today is awful it really is and and you've got two young children and you must you must worry about what they're coming into you know what are i they get being, i do get concerned about I mean, I get concerned about the obvious things like terrorism and the like, but I get, yeah, yeah. I get more concerned. I think about not necessarily the life we're going to lead for them. I actually do get concerned about what might happen in about two hundred years, though. I get really oh. concerned about that because I start looking at. We don't seem to learn from history. Is going to be my point here. No, no. We just That's keep it. on bloody repeating it, and we're just advanced yeah. apes, really, yeah. or monkeys. You know, aren't we? We're yeah. just advanced yeah. hominids that. Have recently in a in a in a um, cosmic time scale, we've only really graduated from the trees and from the jungle, and we're proving it because we just can't stop fighting with each other. 
and arguing no. about just petty shit. Excuse my language. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, Australia's had its had its moments with terrorism, and, and the same with us at the moment in the UK. It's just unbelievable. You sit there and watch the news, and you just think, "Oh my God, where are we going?" Well, that's the thing, Australia. We 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 were the first country, or we were the first. Um, nationality that was attacked post 9-11 because remember when the Bali bombing happened and there were 88 Australians, I think, I don't want to misquote here, but I think there are 88 Australians that lost their lives in Bali. And um, two of the people, I know that there were all, all different nationalities on the London Bridge attack there, but there were two Australians that were killed in that recently. Yeah. And, yeah. and then I think about these, what really gets me upset, that gets me upset too, but, you know, my daughters, they love... My daughter's only a year away from loving Ariana Grande, right? And I just think about all of those poor mums and their daughters from, you know, yeah. you know, the ones that were going to that gig and they got blown up and in Manchester. Yeah. And I think, yeah. holy shit. I mean, I've just taken my kids to the Wiggles, but it's not too far away from Ariana Grande or something like that. And I think, do I really want to put them in that position? Or do we give in or do we just go about leading our life? I don't know. It's a, it's a tough thing because I love my kids, mate, as you, you love your daughter. You know, it's yeah. what do you do? Well, yeah, what do you do? You can't wrap them up in cotton wool and say, you know, I'm not going to let the bogeyman get you, but you can at least make them aware of the bogeyman so they can make their own decisions. And that's really, at the end of the day, it's all you want, isn't it, from your kids, so that they're able to differentiate between yes and no, good, bad, black, white, whatever it be. And that's all you can do. And then the older they get, all you can do is just to be there be there and, and not try and influence their life but just be there should they you know off, should they occasionally fall off that tightrope you've got to be underneath in the safety net no i agree and with you, that yeah very much and, agree with that yeah i, I tend to you, look you, just, right, you, you can't you can't stop them from enjoying themselves you can't oh mum, i want to go and do this and i want to go that, do that and as parents you just go through hell when they want to go to the some camp or they want to go yeah. to, uh, you know, the, uh, some, some mad, uh, play park or some, you know, something like that. Yeah. You, you can't, you just got to try and s separate from that and go, okay, you do it, but we'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're right. <laughs> my, wife, the, my wife, the very first uh, time that our daughter went to London with, um, her kind of, um, preschool, type of group my wife was neurotic enough to follow them up in london in the in the train carriage that mm. was behind the school group gosh <laughs> so yeah. kind of, we call it daughter stalking <laughs> oh, i can understand daughter. that never, never yeah. let her forget it as well yeah i can so. understand that mate i think you know i mean yeah. you do love your daughters and uh, or you know you love your daughter i love my daughters and you want what's best for them and look because yeah. I've, I've been away from home traveling so much with the job that i've just quit doing um i realized with my my youngest in particular who's two and a half for two and well literally two and a half of those years i've only stopped doing it the last two months i haven't bloody been around and and that's not a sob story by the way i had to go away and earn money and do what i had to do until i couldn't do it anymore but um yeah i sort of started to think the most important thing that i think that i can do in all sincerity is spend time with them for now yeah. you know what i mean i think that's the most important that's thing that i can do and 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 just observe them and get to understand their personalities because they are completely different from each other and they're very different from my wife and i that's it that's exactly right you know i mean more than that you cannot say really no that's right mate that's it and uh mate on that note i better wrap things up and i better let you get back to your day because mate i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed this chat 
I thoroughly enjoyed it, Andrew. It's been great. Really nice talking to you. And I'm really so, so proud that you like the album. And, uh, yeah, all the nice stuff you said about it. It's wonderful. Thank you. Meant every word, mate. And uh, my final point would be, please, if you can, in some way, shape or form, make your way down to Australia. Okay. All right. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> all right, Andrew. Thanks, mate. Thanks for the chat. And hopefully I'll chat to you soon. Uh, have a good evening. Well, it's, it's night now, isn't it? It's not even. Yeah, it's, Take uh, care. No worries, Bye, mate. My friend. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was Barry Graham Perkis from the outfit Thunderstick. Thank you so much for listening.